is that of Adam and Eve when they disobeyed God's command and ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden. <clears throat> in our last two lessons, we've seen that Satan had something to do with those two sin or with that sin. He used the strategies of the lust of the eye and the lust of the flesh. But it's very possible that there was another sin previous to that of Adam and Eve. After all, Satan appears there at the beginning as a thoroughly evil being who was engaged in the wicked business of trying to cause these two first humans to sin. We must conclude, therefore, that Satan had been somewhere involved in sin when he approached Adam and Eve to join him in his opposition to God. And the Bible definitely tells us the nature of Satan's sin. In giving the qualification of elders in 1 Timothy 3 verse 6, it states that a man being considered for an elder must not be a new convert, lest he become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. The King James Version translates that as being lifted up with pride, which is essentially the meaning. To be conceited and to be lifted up with pride are really the same thing. Baker's Dictionary, Theological Dictionary of the Bible defines pride this way, inordinate and unreasonable self-esteem attended with insolence and rude treatment of others. And that's what we see in Satan whenever the Bible speaks of him. An Old Testament passage really lies behind that statement in 1 Timothy 3 verse 6. It's found in Ezekiel chapter 28. You might want to turn there, Ezekiel 28. That is a remarkable chapter because it is addressing the king of Tyre. But practically every Bible scholar is, uh, thinks that this is really speaking of Satan posing as this earthly king. In fact, the beginning of the address makes it very obvious. There in Ezekiel 28, verses 12 and 13, it says this, speaking to Satan, you had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom, and, perf and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The king of Tyre was never in Eden because Tyre didn't exist at that time. The only people in the garden were Adam and Eve. And the only other being there than the presence of God was Satan, of whom it says um, that he was in the garden, or rather when he says you were in Eden, the garden of God. Furthermore, there in Ezekiel 28, 14, 
It says you were in, it says this, you were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. The king of Tyre himself was never a cherub, and he covered nothing. He was just an arrogant, filthy, rich, selfish, heathen king. So this passage is surely speaking of Satan who began as an exalted angel, a cherub, who was favored and trusted by God with highly exalted duties. Verse 15 tells us, speaking of Satan, you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created. Satan was created, but not as the Satan he became. He was blameless then something utterly horrible happened. Verse 16 speaks of it. It says, you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. Verse 18 adds, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. The next verse, 17, is the one that is behind 1 Timothy 3, 6. It reads, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. The word pride is to be understood as what lifted Satan up. For that's what 1 Timothy 3, verse 6 says. Satan's sin was pride over his beauty, his exalted position as a cherub, and the special duties that God had assigned to him. That's when God cast Satan out of heaven. As it says there in verses 16 and 17, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God. The phrase the mountain of God is often used in the New Testament to talk about, I mean the Old Testament to talk about where God dwells, that's heaven. Then God says, I have destroyed you, O covering cherub. I have cast you to the ground because you corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. This was when Satan ceased to be the covering cherub and became Satan, the adversary. That's what Satan means, the adversary and enemy of God in all righteousness. And this brings me to the point in this excursus here at the very beginning of the lesson. Satan learned something from his own experience. He learned how terribly effective pride is in causing one to sin and to bring down God's awful wrath upon him. He realized that if pride got him kicked out of heaven and made him God's enemy, it would do the same to people. Therefore, folks, pride is an especially powerful strategy of Satan in causing people to sin. It's especially potent in the case of religious people. It may be nearly impossible to cause a devoted, committed Christian to sin by the way of the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh as I've talked about the last two weeks. We who are committed to Christ guard ourselves carefully 
against that kind of seduction. But folks, as religious people, we are wide open to pride. It's been observed in the past, and I mean centuries into the past, that the more spiritual a person becomes and the greater his service for God grows, the easier it is for Satan to lead him into an attitude of self-righteousness and to the thought that he is really exalted in God's kingdom. So we're warned in Romans 12 and verse 3, through the grace given to me, I say to every man among you, and he's speaking here to Christians, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. None of us become so proficient in God's service that we're indispensable. We may begin to think that, but we're not. Just think of truly great men of God in the Bible. Abraham, Moses, Samuel, Isaiah, Daniel, John the Baptist, in the New Testament, Peter, Paul. What happened to those men? Are they still with us today because they were so important to God here in the church? No, every one of them died. But God raised up others to take their place and continue the work of the church, and it has succeeded, for here we are today. The progress of God's work continued without them, and the same is true today. It will continue when each and every one of us dies. We have some illustrious preachers and teachers among us today that we like to come and give us their wisdom. But folks, they will die and they won't be around to do that anymore. But others will take their place. Pride is such an effective tool of Satan because it has, because it has several avenues of action that cause great trouble and destruction in human life. And six of these are easily identifiable in the Bible and in the rest of this lesson, that's mainly what we're going to be talking about. The first of them is, pride deceives your heart. Look at Jeremiah 49, verses 7 through 22. That's a prophecy against the nation of Edom. It bordered Israel down across the Dead Sea on the southeast. Folks, the Edomites hated Israel just like Hamas and Hezbollah hate Israel today and they attack them every chance they got, just like those two organizations are attacking Israel now. The Edomites lived up on a very high mountain that was very easily defended. Notice what God said to them there in Jeremiah 49, 16. As for your terror, the arrogance of your heart has deceived you O oh, you who live up in the cliffs of the rocks, who occupy the height of the hill, I will bring you down from there, declares the Lord. They thought that their capital city, called Basra in the Old Testament and Petra in the New Testament times, was impregnable because it was up on an inaccessible mountaintop. 
Well, there was excess, but it was only a, through a narrow, circuitous defile that gradually led upward, very narrow. The Arabs today call it the Sikh, S-I-Q. As any enemy approached, they had to come up that defile. And the Edomites, two, three hundred feet above them, looking down on them in that little narrow thing, would laugh at them, taunt them, curse them, and then throw big rocks down on their head. But their pride gave them false security. And the time came when an enemy, it was the Romans, found a way to penetrate their stronghold. The Romans were good at that. And they defeated the Edomites, and they drove them out of there. Just as God had said, they were driven from their high mountains and forced to go many miles to the south and live on a flat desert in what by New Testament times was called Edomia. The second action of pride is that it hardens your heart or your mind. That's what it says of the king of Babylon in Daniel 5 verse 20, King James. When his heart was lifted up and his mind hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne and they took his glory from him. Pride causes a person to think that his knowledge and wisdom are better than other people's and he takes counsel only of himself. He disregards information, judgment, and the counsel of others. But even when someone is especially wise and perceptive, he does not know everything and does not see everything. And his wisdom becomes foolishness when it falls or when he falls because of the arrogance of his pride. Example, Hitler was certainly a man swollen with pride and it led him to his downfall. It began in 1941 when he broke his treaty with the Soviet Union and invaded Russia with a mighty army of about a quarter of a million. It was highly mechanized. It was boasted to be unstoppable. This movement or invasion was called Operation Barbarossa. Hitler refused to listen to the advice of his best generals that it would not succeed. They told him it will end badly, and it did a year and a half later. The Russians finally stopped them right at the outskirts of Moscow and also at two other cities, Stalingrad and Leningrad. And at Leningrad, the Russians, right after the winter of uh, 42, captured an entire German army. There at Leningrad, General Friedrich von Paulus, who commanded the German army, surrendered his whole invasion force, about a quarter of a million men. Then the Russians went westward toward Germany Nobody could stop them that the Germans could put against them. And finally, in May, early May of 1945, they reached Berlin. They broke into it, and they captured Hitler's headquarters. He committed suicide about an hour before that.
The third action of pride is that it leads to contention and stirs up strife. We're told in Proverbs 13, verse 10, that through presumption or pride comes nothing but strife. And Proverbs 28, verse 25, adds that an arrogant man stirs up strife. Presumption is the part of pride that convinces one he is greater and better than everybody around him. But folks, everybody doesn't agree with that view. And there are those present who are unwilling to kowtow to such an inflated person. And that's when the contention begins and the strife is stirred. It often leads to hateful arguments, slandering, challenges, even rebellion. Example, King Louis XVI of France and his queen wife Marie Antoinette considered themselves as the very acme of France. They expected everyone to bow down to them and to serve them meekly and quietly without a word. But multitudes of French people came to the place. They were tired of it. They no longer were willing to do it. They demanded a relaxation of taxes and servility and food for the masses which were starving. When Marie heard that, the masses of your country are starving, she contemptuously replied, food for the masses? Let them eat cake. Wasn't very long after that till they decollated Mary. That means cut her head off, and she wasn't able to eat cake anymore. The French Revolution was a showpiece to the world of the contention that comes from pride. If you want to know every last detail of it, get Simon Shama's book, which is about that thick, and read it and indulge in it. And if you don't want to buy it, I got one I'll loan you. The fourth action of pride is that it encompasses a person like a chain. This is what it says in Psalm 30, uh, 73 and verse 6. Pride encompasses them as a chain. Violence covers them as a garment. This means that pride spreads over a person's heart and mind as the covering of a robe covers your body. Then it takes possession of him and it holds him securely as if by chain. That's Satan's object in every strategy that he uses against us, pride and the rest of them. Satan's object is always to gain firm control of your life and enslave you, making you an enemy of God and dooming you to eternal destruction along with him. When a person is overcome with pride, <clears throat> it is very difficult to convince him or her that he is really no better, no greater, no higher up the scale than anyone else. Someone, for example, may be especially gifted in oratory and manifestly excel anybody else when they speak before an audience. But folks, that does not make that person best in music, in athletics, in woodworking, in auto repair. In fact, such an orator 
probably has no skills or few in those various areas. But pride arising from one skill or ability in which a person is a, as a master very often makes him think and other people's think that he is just inherently better over all. And so he treats everyone with haughty condescension. Pride makes a person despicable and even intolerable to other people. This is, in fact, the way that God sees it. Because in Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 18, it lists the seven things which God hates that are an abomination to him. And you know what heads the list? Haughty eyes, New American Standard, or as the King James puts it, a proud look. Many people, example, many people rank Muhammad Ali as the greatest boxer of the last century, the rope-a-dope guy. Although now, years after his death, they're beginning to move him down to second place, third place, and I've even seen a few that put him in fourth place. Whether he was first, second, or third, or what, he was offensive to me for one reason. Not that he was the best boxer, that was fine during, during his heyday. But he kept on yelling something. I am the greatest. I am the greatest. He would yell it into the cameras. We're told in James 4 and verse 6 that God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Remember, God hates the proud look. That's what it says in Proverbs 6.16. Muhammad Ali became very famous and very wealthy by knocking opponents flat and bloody. That famous picture of him standing over a guy busted on the canvas like this. He loved that picture. But folks, I don't know of anything that he accomplished that did anybody else any good. But. Muhammad Ali had a contemporary, a man by the name of Jonas Salk. He wasn't before the public. He worked back in a laboratory not seen by many people. But you know what he did in that laboratory? He developed a vaccine that prevented polio. And in the 60 years since then, his vaccine has saved the lives of millions of people and saved other millions from paralyzed, being paralyzed. Today, in 2023, 20, not many people remember Jonas Salk anymore who did all that good. But we still remember Muhammad Ali that could bloody you and put you on the mat flat as a board. The fifth action of pride is that it leads to destruction. We're assured of this effect by Proverbs 16 and verse 18, where it says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Pride makes a person overconfident, obscures good judgment, and leads him to a great downfall of some kind. There are countless examples of such in the annals of recorded history. 
I could spend a year bringing them to you one at a time, but you wouldn't want to hear it all. But I'll, So I'll just give you one tonight. After a year and a half of the Civil War, President Abraham Lincoln was totally frustrated. Every general he had sent with a powerful, highly equipped army down into Virginia to beat the socks off of Robert A. Lee and end the rebellion had been smashed and had been sent fleeing back north, humiliated, running into the refuge of bastions like Washington, D.C. So Lincoln thought, where can I find a general that can win? Then he heard about General John Pope out on the, in the Western Theater of the War. Pope had been winning victory after victory, coming down the Mississippi River, knocking over this fort, knocking over that fort, knocking over another one, all the way down until he captured island number 10, uh, right at the Kentucky-Tennessee uh, state line down in the Mississippi. And Pope thought he was unconquerable. Lincoln brought him back east and put him in command of the Army of the Potomac, the main army confronting the South in the Virginia area. And for weeks, as he was getting that army tuned up to invade, Pope crowed like a rooster and boasted loudly, when I get down there, I'll outfox General Lee. You just watch me, I'll crush his army. I'll burn Richmond to the ground. I'll bring the, the Confederacy down within just a few weeks. He, and this was carried in newspapers all over the United States and other countries. He bragged that the enemy out west never saw his back. They only saw his face as he advanced to victory. Well, he crossed the Potomac, got into Virginia, headed south with an army about two and a half times Lee's, and that was about three or four times better equipped. He got as far as a little town called Manassas, and there General Lee made a brilliant, unconventional maneuver, and he, within two days' time, he totally wrecked Pope's army. They came running back into uh, across the Potomac into Washington. Better watch out, they'll capture us. Lincoln was totally dejected. He immediately relieved Pope of command, and here's the fall of the man who was so proud. He relieved him of command. He sent him way out on the frontier, which at that time was Minnesota, to keep watch on the Indians during the rest of the war. A mighty general in a backwater, no authority. Folks, Satan knows that his strategy of pride will bring a person to destruction, and that's exactly what he wants. You see, Satan is a being of hate. There is no love in him at all. God wants to save every one of us. Satan wants to destroy every one of us, and he knows how to do it. Pride is one of his very best tools. And folks, 
This can happen to an entire congregation as well as to an individual. Look at Revelations 3 and verse 17. The church in Laodicea was boasting, I'm rich, I've become wealthy, I've need of nothing. This was the deception of pride setting a whole congregation up for a fall. The fact was there was something they needed desperately that they never recognized. It was humility, the opposite of pride. The Lord told them that in their wealth, they were wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, or in Tennessee, naked. God was putting the grade of F on their spiritual report card. And folks, when you get an F on your spiritual report card, you don't go to graduation, which is going to heaven. The sixth action of pride is that it calls forth the, victim, the verdict of abomination from the Lord. That's what we're told in Proverbs 16, verse 5. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not go unpunished. But what is an abomination? Briefly, that's as bad as you can get. Abomination translates the Hebrew word to'abah, to'abah. That signifies abhorrence. That means something that is re as repulsive as it can be, and it is to God, because he uses that word. God is reviles abomination. Folks, the last thing that you want is for God to look upon you as an abomination and revile you. God doesn't want to look at you that way. He wants to love you and, and in His grace save you to be eternally with Him. But if you let pride ruin you, you become abhorrent to him. The energy of pride is to raise you up above the human level and even to the place where people start looking up to you with a degree of reverence and, and uh, awe. In other words, pride begins to appropriate divine distinctions. And folks, God won't allow that. Example, the Caesars and the Roman Empire began to lift themselves up with unbounded pride to the place where they said, we are gods and you worship us. And so they had temples built all over the Roman Empire and people were compelled to come into those temples and do sacrifice to Caesar as God. But folks, you know what? Every one of those Caesars died just like any common person does. And they returned to the same dust as the rest of us. Some of them were even assassinated. Their supposed divinity could not protect them from the daggers of assassins. The first one that it happened to was Caligula. He ruled from 37 to 41 A.D. That was in the very early infancy of the Lord's church. There's a vivid example of pride bringing God's judgment of abomination and then destruction in a rather dramatic way.
In Acts 14, verses 21 through 23, there it reads, On an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to the people. This was down at Joppa. And they kept crying out, The voice of a God and not of a man. The voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately, it says, an angel of the Lord struck him because he would not give the glory to God. And he was eaten of worms. Herod would not give God the glory. Why? Pride. He was full of it. Pride is fed and grows stronger by glory. And the glory that he was receiving was deafening applause and being recognized as above the human level in oratory that he had to be godlike. And folks, just think of the fall that occurred, the destruction that came upon him. Wouldn't it be horrible to have parasites crawling around inside your body, literally eating the flesh of your muscles and tendons and organs from the inside? There was a man in my hometown, in fact, that lived on my paper route that died that way, trichinosis. Now as we draw to the end of this lesson, let's look at someone who resisted the pull of pride and followed the opposite path of humility. We read of him beginning in Philippians 2 and verse 3, where it says, Do nothing from selfishness or vain conceit, but with humility of mind let each one of you regard the other as more important than himself. Folks, that is definitely the opposite of pride. Pride exalts a person. It makes him want to be above everybody and be magnified. But this is saying rather that as Christians we should humble ourselves and try to lift up those around us. And the higher we are looked up to as teachers and preachers and leaders, the more we should be trying to lift others around us up. We have a perfect example and it's commended there in Philippians 2.5. Have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus. There's the example. Who though he existed in the form of God did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself taking the form of a servant. How different from pride that is. Pride lifts a human being up toward God to rival him, to grab some of God's glory if possible. But Jesus, who was God to start with, did not selfishly cling to that in heaven. When God said, I want you to go to the earth as a man and do something for me. So Jesus, it says, emptied himself. He left behind him in heaven all of his glory, his heavenly station, his divine dignity, and he descended down to this pathetic earth where he took upon himself the likeness of a man. And then being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself even more 
by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. We've already seen that God rewards pride with rejection and then destruction. And now we'll see how he rewarded Jesus for resisting pride, for avoiding it, for choosing humility. Look there in verses 9 through 12 of Philippians 2. It says, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. Pride will lift you up above all that is about you in the world, but the reward is destruction, a humiliating downfall, as I've indicated in some real-life examples tonight. It will bring that upon you in this world but most of all in the next. Following Jesus' perfect example, humility will put you in the position of serving others, but in eternity, it will lift you up all the way to heaven to live with God in glory. And that is stated as a sure promise by Jesus. In Matthew 23 and verse 12, whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted.